Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani-Elbaugh. We are going to be now going into part two of three of our interview with Dr. Barry Gills. In this part, we will be looking at local and indigenous approaches to problem solving. We'll be discussing externalities and the dominant economic paradigm, looking both at value and waste, and thinking about spaceship Earth. Vulnerability and global justice will also be discussed as they relate to global-scale extractivist practice. In this part, we really explore three concepts to live by, being radical, being responsible, and being restorative. One of the things that I, I, I really appreciate in this and the entire approach overall is the looking at local and indigenous approaches to dealing with problems. Uh, of course, like one of the biggest issues uh, in, in, you know, development studies historically um, and in international relations in many ways has been this, perhaps I go too far to say, but like over-Westernization, a, an idea of an expert from a certain area coming in and telling people who've lived in a certain lifestyle for thousands of years, hey, this is how you grow crops better. I, uh, I I think of uh, a talk I remember from from somebody who who used to work for the World Bank was uh, from Italy and he had a I think it was a project in Tanzania and he he talked about it, it was his eye opening thing when he was you know in his twenties one of his first projects he was going to go in and like oh yeah we're going to go in and we're going to solve all the crop failures and things like that and they're like oh look at this like look at this beautiful arable land by the riverside and all the people were like don't don't plant there. Like, oh, but, but it's so perfect for it. And they, they spent, like, you know, millions of euros and planted this beautiful thing. And then, like, in the fall, like, when the, the hippopotamuses were were in their, like, mating season and everything, just destroyed everything and basically ran people off. And they're like, oh, well, why did you tell us? Like, well, we, we tried to tell you. Like, we don't plant there because... That's not a solution to our problems. They have their life there. Like we use the river, they use the river. So I really appreciate seeing this. And there are so many ways that this is changing too in the modern world. I mean, looking at how climate change is affecting things. I, I was reading about um, in the U.S. There's actually a, a town that had a, a flood in the 1970s that destroyed most of the town. So they just took the entire town and moved it uphill. And now in the U.S., they're starting to use it as a, a template for how to deal with these massive storms and everything that are now constantly hitting the U.S. southeast. So there are many different ways of ancient and newer local knowledge that are so important to bring in. I think that's very important in this initiative, in fact, quite central um, to our way of thinking here at uh, Helsinki in development studies. And uh, many of our, uh, our colleagues here uh, work with indigenous peoples in various parts of the world um, and with their local strategies. Well, let me just say it also, is there's a widely held sense, it's long established now in our field and others, that um, uh, an, an extreme skepticism, if not outright rejection, of um, the pretense of um, ideas developed by the particular history of certain Western cultures and states and societies um, to universal truth or universal uh, applicability um, to everyone. I mean, uh, you know, so we actually think that runs counter to reality, 
Uh, so you could see that as a kind of process which is also part of our critique of uh, global extractivisms to the extent to which there seems to be a sort of uh, uh, globally dominant um, uh, understanding of, of uh, how you go about creating value by, uh, you know, by processes that in the end, however, are more destructive than they were positive. Uh, in, in economics, this is often uh, uh, regarded as the problem of externalities. Um, and of course, there are a variety of people, including in the world ecology movement, have taken that as a point of departure to say, well, the problem of externalities in the dominant economic paradigm is a central and profound uh, problem. And it's imperative that we should address it and, um, in a way, uh, reformulate uh, the paradigm of economics and change the economics curriculum uh, to start with, so revision within that field, that um, anything that doesn't account for the full set of complex interactive processes at every level and scale and stage of processes we call production and consumption, um, if it doesn't have a true accounting of costs within that sort of monetized model, then it's false. It's a false economics because there used to be a lazy thinking which was fundamentally wrong, that you can, uh, all that was interesting in the uh, process was that you, you extract resources and labor, you create commodities, you sell them, they are consumed, and you have waste, but you throw it into nature, the waste end, you throw it into so-called nature and forget about it. And it has no cost in the accounting model. Well, this is entirely wrong because it isn't a reality. So again, it's back to spaceship Earth. We, we, there's a need, and we are, in a sense, fellow travelers to this, for a profound reformulation of the basic economics paradigm, or what we call economics, where externalities, in, a, in effect, are now eliminated from the model. They don't exist, because everything is accounted for. I recently read something about a true accounting uh, cost model, which is used by some businesses already. So if the example was, oh, you might think that you go down to the uh, hamburger uh, outlet, and you and you pay two euros for your little burger, right? And you th and they say that's the cost, that's the price. But if by the true accounting cost uh, a, a method, its real cost is twenty euros. So and it was, that's that 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 critique about what's cheap, you know. Um, uh, we've been taught a false economics, and a false economics is still all too dominant. But now we're reaping the whirlwind of it. As in climate change, that's part of the entropic consequences of a false model of economics. We have nowhere to hide. We live on this planet. I think one of the things that comes out for me in this is kind of um, back to the discussion of values and what is value and what should the value, not only the value, but the values be. Because when you take into account some of the different realities, there's like the lionization of cheapness in the consumer perspective and also in the production perspective, cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. We need to make everything cheaper. But at the same time, um, what you were saying about integrating some of those actual real values to what makes something cheap, it's like cheapness is perpetuating the metabolic rift. Cheapness is perpetuating the act of extractivism, kind of the gro the acceptance of gross extractivism within like this wider scope. So it's like, what, what value can we actually 
assigned things. Because, for example, if we decide that cheap cheapness isn't the goal, we don't want things to be cheap, at the same time, on an individual scale, that could really hurt someone because we're operating within like this kind of larger accepted reality that cheapness is the goal. So it's like, where do you find the balance between living your individual life and then being able to operate in a way that doesn't subscribe to this larger lie about how this life was put together? And and I would say as well, so much of the idea of cheapness and how we can get away from it, it disproportionately goes towards the poorest people in the world. Because when we look at like, how do we break away from this? This is people's livelihoods as well. How can we do this and and make it bigger so that the people in the bottom half of the world are not having to lose that much with it? Let let us say that the top 1 billion, possibly up to 2 billion people in the world in terms of income and consumption uh, account for more than 80% of all the greenhouse gas creating emissions. And the so-called poor, which is another problematic category, in fact, um, all around the world uh, contribute very little to the actual problem of the um, um, global climate change crisis. But they, but because they are in often cases uh, placed in s- such a situation of vulnerability, they they suffer greatly disproportionately um, to the rich. We we know all this, right? Um, so that's I mean there are global justice issues that enter in immediately uh, when you start um, you know th- when you start looking at extractivisms on the global scale, it's it's unavoidable. Yes that you would confront and research these types of problems, you know, about how differentially um, people contribute to the problem around the world and how differentially they suffer from their vulnerabilities to the problem and what to do about that. That's all. And again, so you might say at a level of global politics, that's an extremely real and urgent question. Right? How to bring global justice to the center of this discussion as well and not just look for technological fixes, for example. One of, I think, the really valuable things that hopefully the um, researchers under the umbrella of Exalt will be able to contribute is kind of a way to present this like auditing of reality and a way to present these myriad realities that are actually going into each act of extractivism or each type of alternative can actually be presented in a way that is somewhat digestible. So it's able to be understood because I think that sometimes with this, you know, these large, complicated, interconnected questions, sometimes it's like it's just too much and then people don't want to deal with it. I wanted to talk about that um, in just a a way to make it easier to understand maybe and then talking about three concepts that uh, which are which is um, how to be radical, responsible and restorative. And so to radical in the in the traditional sense means to go to the root. And that means you you don't just look at surface phenomena and say that, you know, this plastic goes into the ocean and that causes some harm. That's true. But, the, you know, you go much deeper, as you said, into our whole way of understanding our social reality, how we create meaning, what is a meaningful life, 
Um, do we make a meaningful life through acts of consumption and endless consumption and endless accumulation of wealth, which is based on our, again, on our property systems and our monetary uh, uh, system? And so many things become, in other words, it leads uh, to very profound questions and, and also, I think, to uh, reflections of, of humanity about the meaning of our existence. Uh, maybe you might say to a philosophical and spiritual um, reflection, maybe even to a revolution in that sense, you know? And I, I'm being very serious, and I think it's overdue. It is, I believe it is in motion. And I think also the crisis, if you look at it dialectically, historically, um, these are processes where human beings are learning and adapting. And if we realize that in so many ways we have been conditioned into mentalities and into value systems, into social relations that are actually damaging us profoundly. And not only damaging us as individuals or socially profoundly, but all life in the world. Now this truth is sinking in deeply to vast numbers of people. And so it's a process historically. Uh, in a way also it's a race against time. We know this. I mean, we, the, we, we cannot... Uh, I do not wish to exaggerate <laughs> uh, or predict uh, future tra trajectories, but the science we are getting uh, increasingly and uh, alarmingly and rapidly, one study after another, I think it's common knowledge that we are too near too many breaking point thresholds of too many vectors that support our very existence, not just our comfortable social order that we have at the present, but even our very existence yeah, in the future. Now this is, a, so therefore to be responsible means that you educate yourself. You, everyone now really has the responsibility to understand what's happening. And then with that responsibility, they take responsibility. In other words, they have to act. They have to reflect. They have to change all kinds of things about themselves themselves and about their, their their social relations how they could everything they do in a sense everything we do and it's it's just an ongoing process we now realize that look <laughs> the level of change that really in a sense must happen is huge and yes, it, it, another some people might say, well what can I do as an individual it doesn't matter when these vast forces are in play. And if something isn't done about these vast uh, forces, then what I do is insignificant. I don't agree with that, because as I said before, it's all the levels matter. And it isn't an either-or type of choice. It's everything. So each individual, in a sense, by being responsible, they face the realities, they educate themselves about the realities, and then they reflect on how they must change. And change is internal, it's individual, it's in your community, it's in your polity or your state, and it's globally, it's everywhere, all. And you, you challenge yourself to do whatever you can so far as you keep learning. Because we're all learning all the time, and our learning curve is very steep. And unfortunately, as we now know, and it is common knowledge for those who've read it, some of the largest offending, if not criminal, uh, agents, corporations, particularly in the fossil fuel industry, uh, did their own research 40 years ago, <laughs> and they knew that we were going to reach this point on, on the uh, you know, established 
patterns of business and so on, fossil fuel use. They knew. And instead, they tried to obfuscate and misinform and delay and prevent radical change. Well, now it's too late. We cannot allow that to happen any longer because that's now, in fact, in my view, criminal activity towards... It's, 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 like, it's like a new type of crimes against humanity. Hmm? So that's a whole other realm of discussion that, you know, that um, uh, things are now extremely serious. Uh, so then the, 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 the re restoration part to end the three R's, radical, responsible, restorative, is that we are now learning that we have done so much damage and we are now crossing so many thresholds, or about to very soon, that the only choice that really makes good sense for us as a species is to start restoring. We have to restore what we've damaged, socially and environmentally. Yeah? And this is the motion we're in. This is what alternatives means to extractivism. Extractivism is the problem. The alternatives are the responses that can restore uh, things in such an order that we'll no longer be on a path to self-destruction. I think it's really interesting here to, um, to unpack that idea a little bit of restoration. Because in, like, what does restoration actually mean? What is, what is the imaginary of restoration? Because, for example, going back a 100 years, well, we don't want to get to that level because that's where everything was starting to get so bad. What about 500 years? Oh, no, wait, there's still extractivism happening there. 5,000 years? What is this actual, what is the manifestation of this restoration? Like, what can that actually look like? I'll give you one example. Uh, in the last 12,000 years, um, humanity has uh, managed to cut down half of the planet's original forest cover. Right? Um, when you, there's a new study out, uh, which is going around, uh, a very important one, which has mapped globally the potential for change of land use without impacting current arable land use for growing crops, leaving that aside. And we, we, we have the potential to grow uh, in the years to come, in the near term, 1.2 trillion trees. And, and these are necessary and, and the cheapest, most effective form of carbon capture, where we, we hopefully would help us get to negative emissions. Right, which we must do, and the sooner the better. So and this is part of restoration, where you restore globally the, the forests that once existed and that are so absolutely vital to regulating the entire global climate, as well as so many other things. And that's also related to, example, another one, soil restoration. Because one, again, just in the past 200 years or so, we have lost half of all the world's topsoils. And some people have calculated that at present types of uh, very intense, chemical intensive agriculture around the world, uh, our soils are so depleted and mineral poor, we are basically mining our soils um, and in effect destroying their fertility uh, and that we have perhaps 60 to 100 harvests left on our current intensive uh, method of Agriculture. Well, that that you know uh, is alarming, and so again, restoring soils 
All these things are related, restoring forests, restoring biodiversity, restoring soils, and so on. This, this is one, just an example of what restoring might mean. Can I live a restorative life but keep my smartphone? Well, that's a, that's a good question because, I mean, I can clearly remember when none of us had smartphones. And remarkably, we seem to get things done. Um, you know what I mean? It's the, how, the history of technology and the history of technology that's related to commodification. And then this, now we, we, a small part of the population of the world, by the way, maybe 10% of now or maybe more, but I think it's unclear. It's changing. Uh, but uh, you know, are, are utterly dependent on their phone. But uh, this is very new, and 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 yes, I mean, no. So it, it, we we haven't even begun to think about the material consequences, and all of those uh, complex feedback loops that are involved with us using those phones. It's it's a reality we have to confront, and decide what to do. It's like, for example, those servers behind all of this array of technology that we now so depend on, at least some part of humanity do, the richest part, the highest consumer uh, sectors in the world, right? Who cause most of the damage, to be frank, hmm? because of that. Well, they, you know, we, with the, behind the, the, this, what seems like a innocuous, uh, immaterial reality that's, you know, we love uh, being able to use, uh, you have a, a, an enormous number of servers hidden out there around the world, and they use electricity, and again, enormous amounts of electricity. Um, and what sort of electricity? Does it come from coal? Does it come, you know, what type of electricity? You know, these are the questions that have to now be confronted, and a lot of this is on a very large scale, you know. But these things are these are the areas where you say, if you're going to have something restorative, that means again reversing the destructive processes. So if you've been powering your computers with coal, that that is a huge problem that you you have to stop that. I think with a lot of this, and I, I think it's very interesting with the idea of moving forward, but also restoration, because one of the I guess like kind of hallmarks of global capitalism and in many ways is this idea of like the the propagation of the smartphone the the cheapness of technology and how it, it can bring like these destructive aspects but they can also bring ways of connecting people and, and sharing ideas and one thing i'd actually really like to ask you about and it's been kind of coming up more i, I think in there's been some lawsuits in the u.s i think perhaps in europe as well uh about the the right to repair which I, I found uh, to be a very interesting thing. Like looking at, I, I believe that Apple was sued, uh, as well as some other appliance makers, because of course, if you look back, you know, sixty years ago, if you bought an appliance or something, you could just repair it, and then say in the probably the eighties, nineties, when it started getting cheaper to just buy a new one versus repairing it. And that's kind of led into this uh, this culture of just either buy a new one or uh, one of the right to repair things is how um, I, I know with the Apple lawsuit, it's about how they essentially don't allow anyone else to touch their products and they designed them in this way, which is uh, very unsustainable and completely unnecessary because, you know, if, if you want to replace a battery, shouldn't you just be able to go out and buy a battery and slap it in the back of your phone? <laughs> like. 
Um, so, uh, but I, I just wanted to to get your take on this and see what you thought about it. It's very important because actually um, there are those who are making the point that um, we have to we have to uh, now confront the um, the argument that we need to reduce consumption. So again, this 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 goes into the the argument about growth and limitless growth, or the limits to growth or degrowth. You know, there all these are very vibrant out there. Thousands of scholars and others debating these things. Okay, so we're not in trying to invent or reinvent any of that, but we need to obviously be aware of it and engage with it. You might think there's a different three R's: reuse, repair, recycle. Again, which many people talk about. This is all part of that, which is that, uh, look, um, um, the built-in obsolescence that is, 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 is used by so many corporations in order to perpetuate their an ever-expanding market so that they can maintain or increase profits. Right. Well, that is another gain, again, a part of the overall, when you look at it comprehensively, this is a kind of um, malady <laughs> um, in so many ways. Uh, so that you know, we have to address it profoundly. So when I was talking earlier about how each of us has to really should now educate themselves and reflect and change and act in many arenas, not just one, you know, but, and keep learning. It's not like you can learn everything at once or do everything at once. That's not possible. That's not how things work in the world, in reality. So it's a process, but it's dedicating yourself to the process. And also realizing that you are not an island isolated by yourself, that you are a social being in the most profound sense. Uh, and including also to non-humans, that we are, we have, in a sense, social relations with non-humans all over this planet. And this is in this philosophical change. And many of these ideas are ancient and still preserved in some cultures amongst some peoples, you know, and then they can teach us and they can share certain things with us. But it's, it's as Sophia was also saying, this is not about going back at, into the past. We cannot deny certain kinds of technologies that might help us. Then we need to discuss those and debate them and understand them because things are very complex and not always what they seem to be on the surface. So even the electric car, some people think this will save us. But the model of billions of human beings having a new electric car implies vast resource needs, and that, that's, a lot of that is to do with mining, you know, copper. The, 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 uh, the copper demand for electric cars is, is huge. And, and if everyone had an electric car, an individual privately owned electric car, uh, where is all this copper going to come from? There would be a vast increase in mining. Lithium for the batteries. There would be a vast increase, and there's a limited supply of lithium around the world, and many other kinds of minerals and rare earths and all kinds of things are implied. And also all the energy that's involved with, and the metals and glass and plastics, and you see all these things, and, and all the rest of the infrastructure to facilitate everyone having an electric car. Then people say, well, look, that means that really the model of everyone owning their own private car is a huge problem. And what we need to do is have a different system of transportation, radically different, yeah, which is far more shared. So we, we, we back away from this idea that everyone consumes something as a good, and that is the good life. That maximizing individual consumption of privately owned goods is the good life. Well, actually, maybe it is not. Yeah, I just wonder how, how today... Could I 
just today, right now? What could I do today to help back away from kind of this cognitive dissonance that's required to exist in this, I mean, I hesitate to say lie, but, you know, it's we've been fed this line about how to be, which this is a word that we haven't really brought up. And I think that it's maybe a little bit of a co-opted dirty word, but um, I've been fed this lie about sustainability. But really, a lot of that is just premised on continued consumption, like you were saying with the electric car. So like sustainability is this uh, concept that's been co-opted by I guess economics, the powers that be, the man, I don't know who. But it's like, what do I do in the next hour to move away from extractivism? Well, I think, or the extractivist uh, I think life? we could follow uh, ancient advice that I think Socrates gave, which is that, you know, a life without reflection isn't a, uh, a good life. So we, you know, you, we look to ourselves to start, to take it seriously, to f- confront realities, not to try to ignore them, pretend they don't exist, hide, escape, or even worse, be apathetic and not even care. Hmm? Because there won't be any escape. There is no place to hide, not in the deepest part of the ocean, not on the highest mountain. There is nowhere for us to hide. So that's why, I mean, when you start to say that our, our globalized civilization is in a deep crisis, I take that as a reality. And, and, and then we start trying to understand the roots, the radical sense, the roots, deep roots of these problems. And then we each of us take responsibility as an individual to, um, to learn. And you, you, you have to start. Then you realize that it's going to take a long time and it's going to be very uncomfortable and cause you to make many changes. Also, people are now, it, often it mobilizes people into radical action, you know, which in, uh, you know, um, is all part of uh, making the alternatives, right? So you're being part of the alternatives. Whether what uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, you know, be be the solution you want to see, embody it, embody it. So that's what it is. And of course, it's like, it's like uh, any any path a human being takes to change. It isn't easy, and it isn't necessarily quick. Uh, and it also depends on how seriously you take it and how far you take it. Yeah, that's your individual choice. No one really is forcing anyone to do any of this. Right? Because, in fact, the systemic logic, if you want to put it like that, of globalized capitalism is quite the opposite. They want to anesthetize, distract, um, please everyone with uh, you know, various kinds of pleasures, right? and then call that the good life. Hmm? But the point is, is that's, a, that's an illusion. That's what you were saying. You call it a lie. Well, it's illusory. Because climate change is the wake-up call. It is telling us, look, there are realities on this planet you know, that are formed by forces far beyond anything a human being can possibly control, really, right? They are there. And if you transgress them, there will be penalties, possibly even 
extremely severe. And that's the truth. So we're now learning. I mean, our science is now coming to aid us in many ways by the fact that scientists have been mapping and measuring and studying and hypothesizing about so many of these processes. And they realize, some of them saying, oh, you know, if only we had more understanding already. There's so much we don't know. We have to keep trying to know, you know, uh, all the interaction. For example, the, uh, the famous article about trajectories of the Earth system dynamics in the Anthropocene that Stefan et al. led um, uh, last year or so. So many people have read that, and it's, it's, a, it's a highly important article because they are showing that, look, everything on this planet in terms of the climate system is interrelated and, in fact, integrated, and what happens in the Arctic affects what happens on the other side of the planet and so on. And uh, all of these systems affect each other. And, we, and we, our science of understanding the interactions between these various uh, vital zones of the world is, is very poor. But it, in the end, might even be the most determining one right now uh, that we have to... We, that it le they said, they reached the conclusion that, look, if you think that fighting climate change just means reducing CO2, you should think again because that's not correct. We have to understand how we're affecting all of these various tipping zones, whether it be the Sahel or you know, or the, or the Amazon and the, and the Arctic and so on. All of them interact and uh, might do so alarmingly fast in ways that will then get out of our control completely. This is the danger. This is the thing we have to prevent. And it is a race against time to do so. That's why, again, the, uh, this initiative is just part of a wake-up call to say well, we as academics want to do what we can. We want to, to face this reality and try to do something useful, right? Insofar as that that's our job, our remit, it's what we do hmm? to, to try to, to create knowledge and understandings and communicate them to our students and to other, other academics, to activists, to governments, to anyone who will listen. Hi, all you out there in podcast land. So this is where we decided to break and move on. Chris, will you tell us a little bit about what we can expect in part three? Coming up in part three, we have further reflection on false dichotomies and taking the conversation from academic to action on both a personal and governmental level. We talk about the comforts provided by extractivism and trying to find a balance between the comfort of modernity and not destroying our world. What makes us happy at our core? We look at finding other ways to live and for examples in alternatives. So please join us for part three.